If you will open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this morning we're going to kind of uh, turn the page, go to a new section. We've been talking about the character of God. We're moving away from that now. We're going to be considering uh, the nature of mankind. And uh, as we do that, I want to remind you what our purpose is in this study, that all of the teachings of the Bible that are significant, important, have their roots in Genesis 1 to 3. Every single doctrine that we really need to know at least has a seed, a germ of that doctrine in these 80 verses of these first three chapters. And uh, the more we kind of unpack this, the more we uh, delve into it, we, we are going to gain more and more insight as to all that God has built into to these early words. In fact, um, we're going to try to treat this as if it were the only three chapters we possessed of the Scripture. And ask the question, what can we learn from these three chapters? And then as you see all that is there, uh, we're moving toward the conclusion that it is essential that we understand and interpret these chapters literally in order to understand all the rest of our faith. It is my premise that if you turn Genesis 1, 2, and 3 into an allegory, a mere story that has no basis in factual history, but merely gives us some ideas about morality and creation or whatever, that if you turn it into a story and destroy the factuality of it, that you not only undermine these teachings, but you undermine the whole faith. And that everything begins to collapse upon itself. I really believe that all the rest of the Bible rises or falls on our viewpoint of these three chapters. And so we need to focus on it. And we need to understand all that's there and see the importance of accepting it quite literally. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, we've considered what these chapters say about God, now we're going to look at what they say about man. Because if we could uh, prioritize the teaching, if we could say, here's the most important, here's the next important, I'm not sure that you can legitimately do that, but if we could, I would pick three things. I would pick the character of God, the creation and the nature of man, and the problem of the fall as being the three most important teachings that rise out of these chapters. And the reason for that is we need to know who God is. We need to know who we are, and we need to know why we're in the mess we're in. If we don't get that, we're not going to get any of the rest of it. We'll never even understand the, the, the need for a Savior if we don't understand the problem. And it's in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we learn who God is, who we are, and why we're in the soup that we're in, why we're in the disaster. And as we find those things out, then the rest of the Bible begins to make sense. So as we open with fresh eyes on the creation of man. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We're in the sixth creative day. 
God has uh, already in this day uh, brought forth living creatures, uh, beasts, cattle, creeping things, and all those kinds of things that he mentions up in uh, 24 and 25. In verse 26, the scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Now, you remember from our study of the character of God that this is kind of a conversation going on within the Godhead, within the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're having a conversation. We're, we're able to tune in a little bit here and listen to, to what's going on. And God says, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed... It shall be food for you, and every beast of the earth, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, you all know me well enough to know that I cannot just do a study on the nature of man in Genesis in one sermon, right? So we're going to have at least two, maybe more. And as we study these messages, uh, I want to tell you at the outset, kind of a preview, that chapter 1 tells us the what. And chapter 2 tells us the how and some of the why. Let me explain that. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the creation of human beings as a statement of fact. God made man in his image. And we're told that he did it. And we're told the nature of those human beings. The what. Here's what they are. They're in the image of God and they have dominion. In chapter 2, we're told how he did it. Chapter 2 is not a different story about creation that Moses or somebody else just kind of put two together. Oh, I like both of these. I'll include them. Chapter 2 is an amplification of chapter 1. And as we get into chapter 2, we are focusing on the how that it was done and some of the why. So this morning, we want to look at what is mankind? What is human being? What is Adam and Eve? What are they? What are they like? And then next time, we'll look at how they came to be and what are their particular characteristics. But as we look at this in in verse uh, 26, verse 27, or verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over. 
And then we move to verse 27. It says, So the Lord God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, and so forth. One of the first things that we encounter in chapter 1 is that mankind is made in the image of God. Unlike any other creature, unlike any other created thing, human beings bear the unique characteristic of the image of God. It's not said of any other life form. We're unique in that respect. So immediately we ask ourselves the question, well, what does it mean? To be in the image of God. What, what, what is that like? How does that apply? And we know right off the bat that it is not a physical likeness. We know that because God doesn't have a body. Now, some people are immediately upset with that. In fact, uh, through the years, every time I've said that, at least one person says, well, the Bible says he upholds me with his strong right arm. Or they say, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So he's got to have legs and feet, right? Or they say, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth uh, looking for those whose hearts are turned toward Him. Right? So, so God has arms, He has eyes, He has feet and legs. He must have a body. No, He doesn't have a body. We, we found that clearly, that God is a spirit. We've already discovered that. God is a spirit. He does not have a body. He made all the things that have material existence, but He Himself has an essence of spirit and not physical. So he doesn't have arms and eyes and hands and legs and feet and all those kinds of things. Well, why does the Bible say that? Well, one of the reasons is, how do you explain God to a man? How do you explain God to a woman? How do you explain Him? How can He relate to us? And He uses analogies that we can understand. Most people, for example, are right dominant in the world. Probably 90% of the people are right dominant. Maybe less percentage, but uh, the theory is that not everyone is allowed to graduate who is a true lefty <laughs> unless they learn to, to, to be a righty. So somewhere in the process, 90% of the people come out right dominant and 10% come out left dominant. So when the Scripture wants to relate that God has really got a, a grip on you, that He is really holding you up, it says He upholds me with His strong right arm. And I can understand that. I can relate to that. doesn't mean God has a right arm, but if He had a right arm, that's the one He would be holding me with. That's what it's trying to say to me. So, we call those anthropomorphisms. In other words, the, the characteristics of man are attributed to God so that we can relate to what is being said. How does God see? We don't know how God sees. He doesn't have eyeballs. He doesn't have a lens that focuses on a retina and transmits a signal to the brain. We don't know how God sees. But we know how we see, and we know what happens when we look around. And so the Scripture says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro because like we look around searching, God is looking. And say, oh, I can understand what He's doing now. 
because it's being related to me in a way that I can understand. But God is a spirit, and He doesn't have a body. So we are not like Him in any physical sense. Now, having said that, I do want to point out a couple of things that I think are very interesting. Human beings are created by God to stand upright and to walk upright, to stand erect and to walk upright. We are the only creatures in the, in the, in the whole world, as far as I know, pretty sure I'm right about this. If any of you know something else, you can tell me later. But we're the only ones that walk upright all the time as our normal posture. You can point to some other critters that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, kind of upright. I guess kangaroos sort of hop around. They've got their feet up like this sometime in the front. And uh, sometimes you see primates, chimpanzees, apes, whatever. You see them uh, running around on two legs, but you also see them, uh, when they really got to move, going on all fours. People have even tried to, anthropologists have tried to show the evolutionary uh, concept of how human beings develop up through primate stages and whatever, and really are supposed to be, uh, you know, I heard this years ago, that uh, the reason that so many human beings have back problems is because we haven't fully evolved yet, and we're still, you know, learning how to stand erect because we were really made to, to be bent over. I tell you what, it, <laughs> the way my back feels this morning, if I walked around bent over for very long, I would never straighten up again. But it's not because I was made that way. Um, we were made to stand up. You can ask any physical therapist, you can ask any exercise physiologist, you can ask anybody that studies the neuromuscular system and, and biomechanics, you can ask them to look at the human body and talk about the hip joints and the way the muscles are arranged and how the whole thing works and the shoulders and, and all of that and the axial skeleton. We were designed to walk upright and to stand erect. Our posture was intended to be basically what I have before you here this morning. We were not designed in any other way. And I think there's significance to that. Because as human beings standing erect and walking upright, we look out and over the world around us in the dignity that befits our position in creation as the unique people of dominion and authority. We were made by God to stand and to have the posture that we have. Also, it's interesting to me that whenever God appears to human beings, He appears in the form of a man. All the appearances in the Old Testament with Abraham, with Joshua, with others, where God kind of shows up on the scene, He shows up in the form of a man. And when he is incarnate, of course, he comes incarnate as a human being. Now you say in the Old Testament, what does that got to do? What does that have to do with anything? Couldn't God uh, come in some other way? Well, you have those amazing visions in Ezekiel. You have all those amazing visions in Revelation. 
I suppose God could show up with thunder and lightning and four heads and, you know, ten horns and or ten arms or seven uh, whatever. He could do a lot of different things that would display some aspect of his character, but he doesn't. He appears in human form to human beings, and when we see him on the throne in Revelation, he is described as sitting on the throne, like a person would sit upon the throne. And so while we are not made in God's image in a physical sense, I think our physical design is not merely an accident of creation as, oh, I think I'll make these to stand up. I think there's some deliberation in God's creative intent that we be people who stand straight and tall as those who have authority and dominion in this planet. But in what ways are we in the image of God? How do we bear His likeness? Well, one of the significant and key ways is that we have, like God, we have personality. And that personality consists of rationality, volition, and emotion. In other words, we are thinking beings. We are choosing creatures. We, we have minds. We have a will. And we have feelings. We have emotional feelings, not just sensate feelings out in the body, like stepping on a tack and realizing it's sharp, or putting your hand over the burner and realizing it's hot. We have feelings of grief or joy. We have feelings of sadness or happiness or love or loss. We experience those feelings. And God experiences those feelings. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, because He can be grieved. And He Himself will comfort you with the comfort that comes from God. Or Jesus says, I will give you my joy. And so we see that God, throughout the Scripture, has many emotions. And we also share those emotions. We find that God is a choosing God. In fact, His will is authoritative. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, let there be a firmament that separates the waters above from the waters below, and there is. He says, let the oceans teem with, with fish, and they do. God has authoritative choices, but we're also given the capacity to choose. And we make choices every day of our lives. Do you want chocolate or strawberry? Would you prefer to sit in this chair or that one? Do you want to ride or would you rather walk? We make choices all day long because we are choosing people. We have a will. Now, there are biologists who would have you believe that we are nothing more than a mass of chemicals 
who are uh, programmed by genetic structure to respond to stimuli, and that there is no free choice, that we are merely reacting blobs. No one can seriously entertain that idea and maintain any kind of value and meaning of life for very long. In fact, those who have gone down that road have either sought to control society and control uh, the world like communism in its extreme forms, or they've shot themselves. They've just killed themselves or died depressed. Because if all you think about yourself is that you're an accidental blob of chemicals reacting to stimuli that you have no way of comprehending, and that your thinking really is nothing more than neurons firing in the brain quite by genetic deliberation, and there is no freedom or choice, you very soon realize, if you have any integrity of thought at all, you come to the conclusion that you have no value and no meaning. And life has no value and no meaning. And all the feelings you have are merely a trick of chemistry, and there's no purpose to any of it. And if you get honest with yourself about that, most people would go out and shoot themselves about that time. Because life has no meaning. But we know that life does have meaning because God has given us real choices. We are thinking, feeling, choosing people. Perhaps in a way that we are most like God is in our capacity to reason. We are able to perceive, not just see what's there, but perceive it. Most human beings, if they've never even seen a chair, could come into a room and see an object that looks like this and perceive that it would be a good thing to sit down on. Now that I've sat, all I have to do is figure out how to get up again. <laughs> I realized that as I started into this illustration. We're, we have the capacity to relate one thing to another, to make connections. We can contemplate. We can meditate. We can analyze and evaluate. Not only that, we can create. We're artistic. We create music. We create art. We paint. We make machines. We design buildings. We're architects. There's something about us that is unlike any other creature. Now, once again, there are those who would like to say, well, animals can think. We're just a higher form, a higher evolution of their thinking. For example, some years ago, you know when you get the Reader's Digest, you know what you always read first, right? Life in these United States, humor in uniform, you know, all in a day's work. You've got to read all the funnies first. And uh, some time back, I think it was in the Reader's Digest, I read the story of uh, the, the development of uh, spring-loaded trash can lids in the national parks. I think it was in the Great Smokies National Park that they were having problems with raccoons raiding the garbage cans. And uh, they couldn't figure out how to keep them out of it. Somebody came up with the idea, well, we'll make a lid that screws on and has a, a, a stamped, you know, molded top and a spring-loaded hinge so that, you know, humans can push it open and drop their garbage in, but raccoons can't get into it. 
But after they came up with this design and they started implementing it on the cans, they discovered that the raccoons were still raiding the cans. And this caused enough curiosity that someone put a camera on one of the uh, frequented sites and discovered how they were doing it. They had learned to work in teams. And one raccoon would crawl up on the top and hold the door open for the other one to raid the contents, and then they would trade places. And some people point to that and say, Aha! See? Animals can think. They have rationale. Well, animals can, to a limited extent, work out problems like that. In fact, you can probably teach a monkey or even your dog to turn on a light or to open a door. You train your animals to do certain things. But let me tell you something. At no point in the history of mankind, I know this to be the case, because if it ever had happened, it would certainly be written up and touted loud and clear throughout the planet. In no case in human history has, every, has anyone ever gone into the jungle and found a colony of primates living in thatched homes with a fireplace and cooking utensils and driving around the village in golf cart looking things, you know, that has never happened in the history of the world. A monkey can be taught to turn on a light. A monkey can be taught to type at a computer and even react to certain stimuli but he will never have any desire to leave the lab and go invent a computer. Nor will he ever want to go make a light bulb. There is no desire anywhere in the animal kingdom to be other than what they already are. And all the training and all the teaching you can do has to be done again with the next group. Because they do not pass it on. Nor do they have a motivation to build cities, or nations, or locomotives, or airplanes, or travel to the moon. Only human beings have the passion to be other than what they have and what they are. Only human beings want to invent, want to create. You've never seen an animal paint a Mona Lisa. They might get their fingers in the paint and do something that looks like modern art, but they won't ever do anything that looks like real art. That's actually recognizable. Did I just give away a prejudice? Shame on me. You will never find animals moving to that level of independent contemplation, design, and development. Human beings are quite unique in all of creation in that respect. And we are most like God when we are thinking and making choices and creating. And the image of God is stamped in every person in that respect. The second way that we are very much like God is that we are also designed with a moral nature. 
God has designed us in such a way that we share His innate sensitivity of goodness and of evil, of right and wrong in terms of absolutes. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments express negatively the character of God. For example, they say, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet what your neighbor has, and so forth. And these express negatively what the character of God is like, because He is not a liar, He is not a murderer, He is not a thief, He does not break His covenants, He is a covenant-keeping God. This is His nature. But in the New Testament, we have the summation of those commandments in the positive sense stated very clearly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And it covers the first four. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which covers the last six. And if you look around the planet, you'll find that unless they're taught to be atheists, every human being is innately religious because we have a compulsion to relate to God. It's built into the hardwiring. Not only that, we know absolutely in our hearts that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and we never have to be told that. It comes to us automatically. Even in Sparta, ancient Greece, where they lauded the, the, the shrewdness and cleverness of a great thief. Never tried to steal anything in broad daylight in front of watchful eyes. They did so in secret. Because you're not going to steal my stuff if I can catch you. And you know it's wrong. They were rewarding cunning at the expense of civility and moral trust. And they knew there was something the matter with it. Like God, we have a built-in sense of right. We relate to His moral character. You know, if a grizzly bear kills a human being... No one tries to bring the bear to trial. They just shoot him. They don't try to bring the bear to trial because that would be futile. The bear has not done anything morally wrong. In the corrupted state of affairs, the bear is simply being a bear. And if he poses a danger to other human beings, you just shoot him. But you don't try to try him, because it makes no sense, and we know that. But if a person kills another person, we bring them to trial. Why? Because they should know better. And they have the ability to make a good choice instead of a bad one, and be held accountable for their action. We know this. Because it is hardwired into our being. We are made in the image of God in our moral character. And this capacity for great nobility 
or despicable, hideous, poor behavior is not shared by any other creature in all of creation. And so, while we are not in the image of God physically, we are in the image of God in personality, reason, and choosing, and feeling, and we are in the image of God in moral character. We know right from wrong. But not only did God say, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule, or he also said, and let them rule. And if you will look at verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, I have given you the green plants and so forth. The fact that Adam and Eve were made as the last creative event on the sixth day is not simply a matter of sequence. As we read Genesis, and if I can step out of the three chapters for a moment and say the rest of the Bible, we become undeniably convinced that human beings are the center of this planet, that God is the center of His universe, and that there is a likeness that is also shared in some respects in that way. And as we delve more deeply into it, we come to the distinct impression, in fact, we're told so, that all of the things that were made before man was made were made for Adam and Eve. They were made for us. The whole world was made for us. Now, I realize that's not very popular today. There are a lot of ecologists and environmentalists that would like to uh, hang me on the nearest lamppost outside for saying that. But the truth of the matter is, we are not like the whales, the owls, or any other endangered species. We have unique significance. And in a manner of speaking, and please don't go out of here saying that Martin is so foolish he said that the sun revolves around the earth. That's not what I'm about to say. But what I am about to say is that from a practical standpoint of looking at the scriptures in terms of function and significance, the whole universe is geocentric. It revolves around the earth. It starts with the earth and expands outward, and the focus is on the earth. I am not expecting for any uh, Hubble telescope or other such uh, investigative tool to someday come back and say we found uh, people on some other planet. Because if God is God, as he is represented in the Bible, and, and the Bible tells us the story from start to finish, God is totally absorbed in human beings living on this planet. 
And there is absolutely no evidence that there is any other creature of that significance anywhere else in the universe. We are the ones who share His image and His likeness. And we become impressed that it was all made for us. Now, ultimately for His glory, but He made it that we glory in Him through it. The heavens declare the glory of God. and The earth declares the glory of God. The heavens just demonstrate His handiwork. We are experiencing worship as we admire the things He has made that were designed with us in mind. We also learn that the world is anthropocentric. Man is the focus of God. He did not come to save the whales. He did not come to save the owls. He came to save people. We have unique significance. Now, with that, and we could go into a lot of directions here. You know, it's becoming in vogue these days for for many Christian groups to begin to tout going green. And we could talk a lot about ecology and and saving the environment and all of those kinds of things. And I don't want to get off on that tangent, but I do want to say that it is not without significance. If you want a theology of stewardship of the planet, it's right here in chapter 1. We do have a responsibility. We have a mandate. We were not given this planet to dominate it for our own selfish passions. We were invested with a trust. It was made for us, and we were designed to be its caregiver, its steward. And we have an accountability to God. And so we do have a responsibility. We cannot neglect or, or imagine that we can just consume natural resources and and, and treat uh, the world with abandon as if it had no value. Because it, it was made by God. It has intrinsic worth to an extent, but we must keep it in perspective. I would do what I could to rescue an animal in danger, so long as it did not endanger my life to do so. Because an animal is not worth it. But I would risk my life for another human being in danger. Because they are worth it. It is an equal trade if it comes to that. People have great worth. Because we were uniquely made. We were made to have authority and to govern. When you read the passage, it's unmistakably clear. The scripture says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over everything that creeps on the face of the earth. I oftentimes watch the birds on the bird feeder outside my office. You've heard me say this before, some of you. But I wish I could just go out there and have them eat out of my hand. I wish I could have them land on my shoulder or hold one up and have a conversation. 
They don't like me. They're afraid of me. They like the fact that we put food in the feeders, but they won't come eat from my hand. And really, it's probably in their best interest that they don't, because a healthy fear of human beings is a healthy fear. The whole animal kingdom is infused with that by and large. I would love to pet a bear. They look so, I don't know, pettable. I think it would be fun to romp with a lion. There's a, 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 an amazing picture on a video on YouTube of these guys that raised a lion from a cub. And uh, the, the lion was quite personable and eventually uh, had to turn it loose. And then they went back out in the wild to see if they could reconnect with this lion. And all the people said, you're crazy. The thing's going to eat you. And uh, when they finally did find the lion, he came up and bear-hugged them again. Didn't eat them, but just gave them a, a hug. I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. That's what the millennium is going to be like. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know exactly how Adam and Eve got all the animals to behave and mind them, but I believe before the fall that they did. Because we have a glimpse of that in the millennial kingdom when it's described to us in ways that the lion uh, or the wolf and the sheep lie down together. In other words, they are uh, both domesticated and approachable. Mankind was given the rule and the authority. God is the only one who has the power. God holds all the authority, but He delegated it. And in that delegation, He invested in Adam and Eve, the right of oversight of the planet. We will see later what they forfeited in the fall when they sinned that they didn't even realize they were forfeiting. Because no longer does the Scripture describe this planet as being under the rule and dominion of human beings but of another being who is still under the ultimate authority of God. But there was a sellout and a deception. But originally we were designed to have authority, to have dominion, to rule. Not like despots. Not like using it for our own selfish glory and ends but as kind, generous, benevolent, gracious stewards, managing and caring for and, and cultivating and overseeing the planet in, in a way that was productive and beneficial. And we had the authority. God gave it to us to enjoy and provided within it all that was needed for our sustenance. Even after the fall, much of this authority, at least from outward appearances, remains. We build cities. We found nations. We govern peoples. We make war. We take over other peoples. We rob them of their resources. We dominate the animal world in many ways. We seek to dominate nature. Every once in a while it turns the tables on us and we find out that we have not quite harnessed its forces. But we make the effort. 
because it is in our nature to rule the planet, even though that nature is now fallen and the rule is often destructive. God made us in that way. When you think this morning and in the future about who you are as a person, I hope you will recognize that you are made in the image of God, that you bear his likeness. Of all creation, you are the only one of the creatures on this planet that bear the likeness and similarity to God. And like Him, your reasoning capacity and your choosing capacity and your moral compass has amazing ability. Furthermore, you were designed to be a prince or a princess in a great kingdom over which you reign under the authority of God as the ruling royalty of the planet. And when you doubt your worth, remember this, that God has already assigned a value to you. He has expressed it in concrete and understandable terms. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The value that God has assigned to your life is the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. God has esteemed you worth the death of Christ to redeem you. Don't sell yourself short. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we've made a mess and we live in a mess. Yes, there is destruction and death and decay all around us because of sin. But God has said, you bear my image. I made you in my likeness. And I will pay the price of my son to redeem you for my glory. That you may once again be restored to your place of dignity in the universe. We have great worth, friends. Next time we're going to look at how God made us, what our nature is like. And then, of course, we have to consider what went wrong. Why is the image of God marred? And why is the planet in such a mess? And the Bible graciously doesn't leave us without answers. Father, thank you this morning for your love. And thank you for the value that you have assigned our lives. That you gave your only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. And so, Lord, we say with the Apostle Paul. 
If God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? You have made us joint heirs with Jesus. You have given us an inheritance in the heavenlies that cannot pass away. You have invited us into your presence. You have restored us. And you are remaking us in your image. For you predestined us to become conformed to the image of your Son. Thank you, O gracious Father, for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.